So I remember a time when I was, I was about four or five years old, and I was with my family in St. Paul, Minnesota. My dad was, he ran a lot of marathons when I was a kid, and we were, we were at the finish line to one of his Twin Cities marathon finishes. And so uh, it's downtown St. Paul. I still remember it to this day. Like off to the left right over here was uh, the state capital of Minnesota. And then just all around us, there's thousands of people lined up around this finish line waiting for their family member or their friend to come by and cheer for them. And so I'm standing there for quite a long time with my mom, and I'm just holding her hand waiting for dad to come by so we can cheer real loud. At least that's what I thought I was doing. I, uh, I don't know why, but I looked up after, this is after a long time, probably like 15 minutes holding this hand. And I looked up, and my mom looked really weird. Because it was not my mom. And I had this sheer panic, like, because I'm like four or five years old, and I'm thinking, I'm being kidnapped. Like, there's no doubt this lady is going to take me, and I will never see my mom again. And then, but then I look behind me, and oh, there's mom. Why am I still holding this lady's hand? I don't know. And it just, I was kind of freaking out about it. My mom starts laughing about it, and I felt incredibly embarrassed. Um, we have moments like that in life where we, we have these misidentification situations where we think we know somebody we don't, but we don't. Or we think we understand somebody's character, but we don't. Or we think we recognize somebody, but we don't. Um, I was a I was a basketball coach for a while, and we would have these summer league basketball games. And I was, I was actually not able to coach them because back when, back when I was coaching, you only had five coaching days in the summer. So I couldn't use them up at every single league night game. And so uh, I would go to this, to this gym, though, to watch my girls play each night. And um, one of my favorite players at the time, she was, she was one of my best players. She was a point guard. I always like the point guards because they're usually short. Um, and so she, she and I, we had kind of a cool relationship. Every single time she would see me, she would at least act like she was excited to see me, which from a teenager, that's really cool. It makes you feel good. But she would see me, and she'd be like, coach, like out in the middle of the parking lot at the high school sometimes, and I just hear this coach. Well, she comes into the gym one, one evening for, for league night, and she sees me out ahead. Um, she's like, coach, and she thought she said it loud enough for me to hear, and I didn't turn around, so she starts to feel kind of weird, and then... After a while, I finally turn around, and she sees my face, and I'm a 12-year-old boy. She mistook me for a 12-year-old boy. When she, told us, when she told me and the team about that, like, we died laughing. I tried to pretend like I was really mad, but I wasn't, because I expect these things. But she mistook me for a 12-year-old boy. And confusion about people's identity... Um, it can be destructive in the wrong situations. And this morning, we're going to actually look in in Scripture about a time where people, they kind of misidentified who Jesus was. Uh, The day we're talking about is Palm Sunday. It's the the Sunday before Easter. Um, And something really unusual happened on Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus comes into Jerusalem um, just a few days before he's going to be crucified. And that's, that's the really unusual thing that happens is that Jesus is treated like he's a king by these people in his, t- in his town, in Jerusalem. But just a few days later, on Good Friday, we know that Jesus is going to be crucified. He's going to be hung on a tree. He's going to be killed by these people. 
But just a few days prior, they are treating him like royalty, like he's the best thing ever. Um, But the reason that the, the Jewish people were treating Jesus so well was really because they had misidentified who they thought he was. They'd misidentified why they thought he was so great. Um, if, you've, if you've been in church life very long, or if you know much about, uh, about church history and Jesus and the Jerusal- Jerusalem around that time and the, the Jews around that time, you probably know they thought the Messiah was going to come and be a political savior. But Jesus was not the Jesus that people were expecting. In your own life, do you feel like Jesus has been the Jesus that you've been expecting? Can you imagine if, if the only thing that we had to look forward to in the Messiah was him being a political savior? To me, that just, something just doesn't feel right about that. Um, I think every single one of us, we would love for there to, to be some political savior out there that would make all the politics in our world just be better. And there's some people, I think, who who can't even find peace. I, you hear a lot of people saying stuff on social media. Like, it's like they have no peace in their life because they don't like the way things are on a political front. But the truth is, political peace does not ensure you and me spiritual peace. It never will. Nothing politically will ever get us to that place. Um, we, think, we think of America as so bad today. I was not alive in the 70s. My wife was alive in the 70s. She's a 79 child. I'm an 81 child. I was not alive in the 70s, but I've, I've heard in my history books, it wasn't the greatest, it doesn't sound like. People were, a lot of people about Vietnam War, there were gas lines that made people feel like it was, the world was coming to an end. Um, I wasn't born, alive in the 1860s. But that whole Civil War thing seems like it was not a very good situation. And so, we have a tendency to think that we're in the, ah, things are just so bad, they're awful. But America eventually got out of the Great Depression. America eventually went on again to greatness after the Vietnam War, and the gas lines went shorter. And America eventually got rid of slavery. It took way too long, but it happened. And for none of those things was a political savior needed. The only thing that you and I need a Savior for is for our sinful nature. It's the only thing that we need a Savior for. We need a spiritual Savior. But see, the, the Jews in Jerusalem, they thought that, that the Messiah was going to come in and be this political uh, guy with military might, and he was, he was going to be just a, a dynamic person in that sense. But even if you look back to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah was not going to be that. He was going to be something quite ordinary. In Isaiah 53, it says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So I want us to take a look here what, what, what actually happened on Palm Sunday. Um, it really starts off where Jesus and his disciples, they are coming into, towards the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, he tells two of his disciples, hey, I want you guys to go ahead of me. I want you to go, you're going to find uh, a donkey in its colt tied up. I want you to untie the donkey in the colt. If anybody asks you what you're doing, just say, hey, the Lord needs it. And then come bring me the donkey. And that's exactly what happens. Scripture talks about it, that they, these disciples, they go, they find the donkey, 
The owner's like, hey, what you doing? Because that does, like, why are you untying my donkey? Oh, the Lord needs it. And the owner's like, all right, take it. And they bring this donkey to Jesus. They put a cloak on the donkey, and Jesus sits on the donkey. And then he goes and he rides into the city of Jerusalem. And so that's where we pick it up in Matthew 21, verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of Jesus and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, a prophet, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so from there, Jesus does a ton of cool stuff during this week. He goes into the temple and and people are being healed left and right. You got blind people that are being healed of their blindness. You got lame people who are able to get up and walk. Jesus is doing all this cool, crazy stuff. But then there's, there's a group of people that are not real happy about it. We pick up in verse 15. It says, When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yeah, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So Jesus is, Jesus is being treated like he's this political military giant. Closest thing I can think of to, to an example of how Jesus responds to that, I think a little bit of George Washington. George Washington, they're like, hey, why don't you be our king? He's like, no, that doesn't sound like the best way to go about things. Jesus is given the opportunity, and he doesn't take it. He's so different than everybody else that's afforded this opportunity. Most people that, that are given this opportunity to be this political giant, what you see come from it is tyranny, and people lose their freedoms because they don't treat people the way that Jesus lived, lived the way that he treated people. Jesus came as something that he wasn't expected to be in order to be everything that we needed him to be. One of my, one of my favorite trilogies of movies is the Batman movies with Christian Bale. And there's a, there's a scene, I think it's in The Dark Knight, uh, where, where Gordon, he's talking, about, um, he's talking about Batman. And he actually says, he's the hero that Gotham deserves, but he's not the hero that it needs right now. And when I think about Jesus, I think about it as he, that's, it's the exact opposite of that. Jesus is not the hero that we deserve. We, we don't deserve that. But he's the hero that we need. Jesus is not, he didn't come as something that we expected him to be, but it's so that he could be everything that we needed him to be. Uh, one of the things I find most fascinating about this triumphal entry into Jerusalem is that Jesus was trying to do everything he could to get, to get this idea squashed about him being a political revolutionary. Actually, in Zechariah 9.9, 9, um, it's predicted about the Messiah that he's going to come in gentle and riding on a donkey. And so you might think, well, Jesus knew that Zechariah 9.9 9 said that, so that's why he came in on a donkey to, to make this prophecy come true. That's not why he did that. He actually did it because it was the exact opposite of what those people were thinking about. Coming in on a donkey was the opposite of coming in on some military, you know, this steed, like a horse. That's what a military person would have come in on. Um, he was trying to get them to see who he actually really was. 
but they were unable to do it. They still went ahead, even though they must have had these doubts because they're looking at this and they're like, he's coming in on a donkey. What? This doesn't make sense. But they still went ahead and they put down these palm branches on the ground for him as he came into the city. So now what is that, what is that an allusion to? If you go back to the, the Maccabean military exploits, it, when they were, would go out and they would they'd have a military victory, when those military leaders would come back to the city, they would throw palm branches down for them. It's, it was a way of honoring them. It was a way of saying that you guys are, you guys are military. You're awesome. That's why they were laying these palm branches down. They still believed that Jesus was going to be that. It was, it was their way of kind of implying that they were only willing to see Jesus in their preconceived ideas of who the Messiah was supposed to be as a political revolutionary. They had preconceived ideas. And it got them to the point where they were even willing to shout out their praises to Jesus. But just a few days later, those praises turned into curses. Those praises turned into calls for his death. I think we've, we've all probably struggled at, at certain points in our life with preconceived ideas that get us into trouble. I remember I, I was, this is a number of years back, I was at Bible camp uh, one summer with kids from my youth group. And um, I was just, just kind of going around the campground and I happened to see the band that was there that, that summer. Uh, they were out on the basketball court shooting hoops. And so jokingly, I said to them something to the effect of, hey, don't you guys know that you're musicians? <laughs> like, you're not athletes. And one of the guys, he was kind of competitive, and so he, he's like, why don't you come out here and play me? It's like, no, you don't want that. <laughs> I'm just telling you, you don't want that. He had a preconceived idea of what a 5'4 white kid would do on a basketball court. And he's like, no, you come out here. I'm like, no, you don't want that. And my buddy's sitting next to me. He's like, really, buddy, you don't want that. You don't want that. And he just kept on saying it. So I'm like, all right, hey, I, I just want you to know, I warned you, this is going to be fun. So I went on the basketball court, and I beat him pretty easily. I think the score was like seven to three. I had to let him score a couple times. Um, but this guy had a preconceived notion that there's no way that I played basketball. Everybody always tried to get me wrestling when I was a kid. I don't want to wrestle. Seriously, I will get killed if I wrestle. So I played basketball. And it brought him a little bit of humility. But we've, again, we've all had these situations where we had preconceived ideas. Um, I grew up having a preconceived idea that a man is not supposed to marry some, a woman that's taller than him. It really took out a lot of the population that I could marry. But it, what I also found out is that when you're a really short dude and you marry a pretty short woman, your kids will grow up in the second percentile of height. That's not, not great for them. Luckily, I have four girls. Um, you don't have to be as tall, I guess. Preconceived ideas can get us... Now, that one, it worked out okay. Crystal, just so you know, Crystal is shorter than me. She's like an inch and a half shorter than me. She used to say she was 5'4", so I said 5'4 and a quarter. Then I found out she's actually like 5'3", but I still say 5'4 and a quarter because it's... Quarter inch is important. Um, but I, I've had worse preconceived ideas that got me into more trouble. I, I grew up thinking that only people from evangelical churches really loved Jesus. Not realizing that there were people in, in more main, you know, mainline churches or whatever that, man, they followed the Bible too and they loved Jesus. And in college, I had to get some over, those, over some of those ideas when I had friends coming from other churches and, hey, they love Jesus too. 
We have preconceived ideas. They can hurt us. What if we're not so much different from the Jews who laid down those palm branches before Jesus? What if we have preconceived ideas about who Jesus is? Do we at times only choose to see Jesus on our own terms rather than on his terms? You know, the Bible says that, that it's pretty clear that Jesus is going to provide us all of our needs. Okay, well, what does that mean? We live in a culture where, like, Netflix is a need. <laughs> is Jesus really supposed to pro- provide every single one of our needs? Have we, have we gotten into our brain that Jesus has to do certain things for me that is completely far away from what he's actually come to do for us? We have a different expectation of what Jesus should do in fulfilling our needs. And it may be more than he's actually promised that he said he would do. But the trouble here is we run a real risk of learning to doubt who Jesus is if he's not the Jesus that we have in our preconceived ideas. That's what the Jewish people struggled with. They thought he was going to be a, a leader that was going to bring, bring political peace. They, they thought that he was literally going to sit on a throne in Israel and rule over people. But when they started to see that this wasn't his plan, that this wasn't who he actually was, that's when they turned on the Messiah. That's when they decided that this, this Jesus wasn't the Jesus that they wanted. Do we see Jesus just as a disciplinarian when really he wants us to see him as a giver of grace? When I make mistakes, do I, do I just stew over it forever? And, and Jesus is sitting there trying to be like, hey, I forgive you. I want you to be okay, but we see him as a disciplinarian. Or when somebody else does something, we can't see them with grace because we think that the God that we serve is he's just about discipline. Or maybe we have a preconceived idea about what the church is supposed to be, that the church is it's just there to, for me to, to have my needs met the way that I want my needs met. The Bible says in Hebrews 10.25, that we're not supposed to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. We're called to meet together, to be the church, not to go to a place that's called the church, but we have these preconceived ideas that are wrong, that, that keep us from being the church that Jesus has asked us and called us to be. Have I become victim to a preconceived notion that the church is about me rather than about what I can bring to other people? These are the kinds of questions that we need to ask ourselves this morning. Are we guilty of having made Jesus out to be the person that we want him to be rather than the person that he truly is? And if that's the case, then we, we have to come to a conclusion of, okay, so who is Jesus? And I think looking at this, this scripture from, from this Palm Sunday situation with Jesus, I think that we can find some things that we, we can definitely see this is who Jesus is. Um, so I, think it's, I think it's absolutely vital that we understand exactly who he is if we're going to live the way he wants us to. So the first thing I think we see in this, in this whole scripture is Jesus is God. Now, I know I'm in, I'm in church, and so that probably sounds like most of we kind of know that. That's why we're here, Kellen. But this is one of those disputes that comes up that I, I just love when people bring it up. Like they try to say, man, Jesus never said that he was God. And I want to just tell him, go and read the New Testament and tell me that again. Just in this passage alone, you've got these kids coming up to Jesus and they're saying, Hosanna, the son of David. They're giving praises to Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, hey, shh, 
That's not, that's not me. When the, when the religious leaders are like, hey, why are you letting these kids do that? Because. <laughs> look at me. <laughs> that's what I've done. I was Jesus. Like, hey, look at me. I'm Jesus. Jesus is God. He even makes claims to be God, even though people want to try to say that that's not the case. This, this, whole, this chapter is, is him doing this incredible amount of God claiming. And then he goes and does other crazy stuff. He's, he's telling his disciples, hey, go, and, go up ahead. You're going to find a donkey there. Somebody's going to ask you what's going on. Just tell them it's for the Lord and bring it. That all happened. He's healing people in the temple. He's doing things that only God could do. Um, this is something that I think I don't, I might have mentioned this before on a Sunday. I forget what I say to kids in youth group and what I say to people on Sunday, but there was a time, it was about a month long uh, while I was in college, that I went through some serious doubt about who Jesus was. I was in a worship service, and I, I remember the thought specifically. It was, it's like, if Jesus isn't God, it's like, we're all in trouble. Like, what are we doing? And so in that month, I had to get to the point where I could logically give a reason of why I believe Jesus is God. Not just a biblical reason, but a logical reason. And so while I was, while I was in that month of just doubting, I, I, I came across C.S. Lewis's uh, Lord Lunatic or Liar discussion. If you haven't heard about it, man, look it up today. It's, it's fascinating. But um, I want to just kind of give you a little brief synopsis of it. So Jesus, Jesus is a historical figure. He is a person who lived. And we know that not just because the Bible says it, there's actually a first century, first century historian named Josephus who writes extensively. He writes, writes a lot about Jesus. Um, we know Jesus is a historical figure. There's, there's really not any people, his, history people, that would go out and try to say, yeah, Jesus didn't exist. So we know he existed. Um, we also know that there was a lot of claims about who Jesus was, that he was something more than just a man. We know that we know that he claimed to be God because that is the very reason why the Jews wanted him dead. They, they said that he had blasphemed against God, that he had considered himself to be God. And so we've got this dilemma that there's really only three options that Jesus could be. He existed, he claimed to be God, so he's either, he is that, he's Lord, he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. And Lewis kind of takes you through these three things. And really, if we can, let's take the Lord part out of it. If we can see that he's not a lunatic or not a liar... Maybe then we can believe he's Lord. And so the lunatic thing for me is the interesting one. Like that one, I look at the life of Jesus, and there's just nothing about it that says lunatic. Like people followed him. He was kind. He was gentle. Um, in fact, C.S. Lewis says, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend like this evil demon. Um, but there are people who will try to say, yeah, well, okay, maybe he wasn't that, but he, he was just a good teacher. Well, would a good teacher actually say that he's Lord if he's not? And so that's where we get into, is he a liar? Um, was Jesus a liar about who he was? For that, I think we need to go back to, did he actually rise from the dead? That's something that Jesus had told his disciples. They didn't understand it at the time, but a bunch of times he had told his disciples, I'm going to come back after three days. And did Jesus rise from the dead? That that's a big question of whether or not we believe he's this divine being. And so looking at that, I, there's a lot that could be said about this, but I want to try to keep it short. Um, the Bible says that his tomb was empty on that Sunday morning. Now, we can't just prove things of the Bible by 
using the Bible. I get that. But I will say the Bible is it's like the most accurate old text that we have. Um, just for instance, earliest copies of manuscripts of Aristotle are dated 1,400 years after he lived. The Roman writer Tacitus, he's considered a first-rate historical source. Yet we only have 20 copies of his work, and his earliest manuscripts are dated 1,000 years after he lived. But then if you look at Jesus, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Matthew, were dated seven years and 17 years, respectively, after Jesus was crucified. And we've got tons of manuscripts. The Bible is an incredibly accurate historical source that we can go to. But what's more important to me than that is how the Bible talks about the 500 people that saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. But even more, I think more importantly than that, are the 11 that were his disciples. Now, Jesus had 12 disciples, but we know one of them, Judas, betrayed Jesus, ended up killing himself. But those other 11, every single one of them were tortured or killed at some point because they didn't renounce their faith in who Jesus was. But I want, so I want you to think about that. They're saying Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus rose from the dead. The, the tomb was empty. Now, they could have very well taken that body out of that tomb and done what they wanted to do with it, but they all were tortured and they were killed for that supposed lie, if it was a lie. To me, man, I just don't think that people would die for something like that and that all of them would die for that. So is Jesus really God? And if we say that Jesus is God, what does that mean for us? When I say Jesus is God, how does that change my life? If he really is God, the only acceptable thing for me to do is take myself off the throne of my life and place Jesus there where he belongs. I can trust that God wills for my life things that are right for my life. May not be easy, but it's the right thing. If Jesus is actually God, we have to let him be on that throne. The second thing that I think we see in this passage here is that Jesus is king. And I, I love what happens here in Palm Sunday with the donkey, the donkey carrying Jesus into Jerusalem. Because Jesus shows that he's a totally different kind of king. There's no kings that come riding in on donkeys. He shows that he is a servant king. That his kingsmanship, if that is a word, is that a word? It is? Awesome. I looked at the English person there. Um, his kingsmanship is about servanthood. If Jesus is your king and he is your servant king, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that I give over all ultimate authority over to him. Every bit of authority in my life, I put it in his hands. He becomes my authority. What he wills for my life, I will trust it. You see, Jesus is different than every other king. He's different than every, every other political figure because he is worthy of the title not because of political position, but because of his willingness to serve the people that he is serving, that he is in charge of. Jesus is not subject to our desires, but rather we are subject to his desires. And see, the, the owner of that, of that donkey, he knew that. When the disciples said, hey, the Lord needs, needs your donkey, he's like, all right, if the Lord needs it. He understood that that servant king was his master. If Jesus is really your king, we have to get to that point where we let him be that ultimate authority in our lives, where we submit to his will. Jesus had to do it with the Father. Um, on that night he was betrayed, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's, 
he's like, Lord, if, if you can take this cup from me, great, but not my will but yours. But a lot of times what I say is, Lord, I don't want to do your will because it doesn't look fun. <laughs> right? Jesus as our king means I say the same thing that Jesus said, not my will but yours be done. The third thing then that we see about Jesus in this, in this story is Jesus is Savior. He is our Savior. Um, again, I think the donkey was a perfect, really, allusion to this whole thing for Jesus. A donkey carries the burdens of the person that he's serving. That's what Jesus did for us. As our Savior, he, he carried burdens that you and I couldn't carry for ourselves. He carried the, the burden of our sin to that cross, a burden that we just we couldn't do anything about it ourselves. Unfortunately for us, sometimes we don't feel like Jesus is carrying the burdens that we need him to carry. Sometimes we don't feel like he's maybe capable of doing it. We're struggling with this ongoing doubt in Jesus' ability to do what I need him to do. But maybe, maybe you don't actually need him to do some of the things that you were thinking that you needed Jesus to do. Maybe Jesus doesn't need to make everything the way that you are thinking he needs to make it. Maybe we just need to start to see him as that spiritual savior. That is, the, that is what he came for. And when that changes, when we give him that and he carries those burdens, everything else can change. I want to remind you of this thought I said earlier. Jesus came as something he wasn't expected to be in order to be everything that we needed him to be. There's nothing more central to the gospel, there's nothing more important to the gospel than realizing that Jesus is God and he is going to be even better and more capable than what your expectations would put on him. Jesus is better and more capable than the expectations that you have on him right now. But maybe our expectations need to change. Maybe we're expecting things that he never meant to to, to go out there and do for us in the first place? Are you seeing Jesus for all he is in your life? Are you free from preconceived ideas about who you think he is supposed to be? Have you allowed Jesus to be to you who he really is? Your God, your King, your Savior. Why don't you bow your heads? I want to I pray with you. Worship team, you guys can come up. Um, before I pray, I, wanna, I want you just to have your eyes closed and, and just be spending a little bit of time um, thinking about what I'm about to ask. Um, a couple questions I want to ask, and then I'm going to pray with you, but as you respond to this message this morning, are you sitting there thinking, you know what, I have to allow Jesus to be my Savior. Um, I've, I've tried to carry my own burdens. Maybe particularly I've tried to carry the burden of, of my own sinfulness, my own unrighteousness, that I know I'm not perfect, but... Um, I've, I haven't given that over to Jesus. I haven't let him be my savior. I know I need to make him my savior today. Maybe that's one response that you'd have to, to the message today. Maybe a different response would be, you know, I've been guilty of putting Jesus into my own preconceived boxes. This morning, I want to begin to see Jesus for who he actually is, not for who I want him to be. I don't want to limit him anymore. I don't want to live a self-focused kind of religion, but I want this selfless relationship with Jesus that allows me, 
allows him to, to be using me in my life. I don't want to put him in a box. If you're either one of those two things, man, I want to, I want to let Jesus be my Savior this morning, or, man, I want to get out of these preconceived boxes I have of him. I'm finding it, I'm, I'm, that I'm frustrated with God, even though he's given me everything I actually need in salvation. If, if either of those things are, are you, I'm going to pray. Um, I want you to pray with me, but go find somebody in the back. We've got a prayer team that'll be back there. Go and pray with somebody this morning. Let, let them help you give those burdens over to Jesus.